Welcome to Season 5 of Writers' Festival Radio, broadcasting from the unceded and unsurrendered territory of the Anishinaabe Algonquin Nation. My name is Sean Wilson. I'm the Artistic Director of the Ottawa International Writers' Festival, Canada's Festival of Ideas since 1997. We're celebrating 25 years of community connection, and I want to give special thanks to our amazing volunteers who make it all possible, and to thank you for supporting the festival, authors, booksellers, and each other. Today on episode 12 of season 5, we present a conversation with acclaimed historian and author Tim Cook. Our host, Lawrence Wall, is one of CBC Ottawa's most recognizable voices and a longtime friend of the festival. Here's CBC's Lawrence Wall setting the stage. Hello and welcome to this podcast for the Ottawa Writers' Festival 25th Anniversary Edition. My name is Lawrence Wall. I'm delighted to be here with one of Canada's best-known military historians, Tim Cook. Tim and I will be discussing his fascinating new book, Lifesavers and Body Snatchers. It offers insight about Canadian military medicine in the First World War while revealing some shocking findings. The First World War was a worldwide conflict on a massive industrial scale. A field ambulance commander wrote this about one particularly bloody battle. He said, Passchendaele is a story of hardship unparalleled, of circumstances without comparison, of endurances that would not be believed, an experience of very hell upon earth. The only popular depiction of military medicine that people know about is the movie and TV series MASH, where doctors safely operated hundreds of kilometers behind the front lines while drinking and golfing to their heart's delight. The reality was utterly different. Doctors and nurses with the Canadian Army Medical Corps often performed surgery just a few kilometers from where the badly wounded soldiers had been hit. If these men had not been treated near the front, they would have died before reaching a major field hospital. And the toll on the medical corps was horrendous. More than 500 doctors, nurses, and other personnel were killed in action or died of disease. Hundreds more were wounded. But along the way, despite the deaths and injuries among doctors and patients, treatments steadily improved as new techniques were developed, new skills were learned. Thousands more men were saved from the kind of critical wounds that would have killed them earlier in the war. Pioneering work began in fields such as plastic surgery, brain surgery, and blood transfusion. Tim Cook has also uncovered a disturbing element from an already horrific war, and that is Canadian doctors retrieve body parts from the corpses of Canadian soldiers to collect them for a planned museum on Canadian military medicine. This museum had the government's support to be built in Ottawa after the war. So hundreds of Canadians who had paid the ultimate sacrifice were then to be put on display without their permission or that of their families. Body snatchers indeed. Tim Cook is chief historian and director of research at the Canadian War Museum here in Ottawa. Lifesavers and Body Snatchers is his 13th book. Tim has won several awards for his books, including the C.P. Stacey Award for Best Book on Canadian Military History and the Charles Taylor Prize for Literary Nonfiction. In addition to his writing, the media often seek him out for interviews about the military, the wars that Canada has fought, and Remembrance Day. Tim, welcome to the podcast. It's great to speak with you again. Great to talk to you, Lawrence, and, and how nice to be back with the Ottawa Writers' Festival. 
Indeed. Tell us about the state of Canadian military medicine in the fall of 1914 when the war broke out. Was there even a functioning medical corps at the time? There really wasn't, Lawrence, and, and um, our, our medical services were deeply uh, unprepared for the war that would come. But we shouldn't be surprised there, of course, because Canada was deeply unprepared when it found itself at war on the 4th of August, 1914. We didn't decide to go to war. We were a British dominion, and yet it was up to Canadians to enlist. And they enlisted, as we, as we know, as you and I have talked about, by the tens of thousands and then the hundreds of thousands eventually 620,000 Canadians would enlist from a country of 8 million, a staggering number. And of course, the doctors and nurses of the country enlisted as well. About half of all Canadian doctors and a third of all Canadian nurses uh, served in uniform, um, most of them overseas. And as you mentioned at the top, um, uh, playing multiple roles uh, in supporting the fighting services who were engaged in unthinkable warfare on the Western Front, fighting in the trenches, fighting in that deadlocked uh, struggle of high explosive shells, machine gun bullets, uh, chemical weapons and tanks, and suffering uh, wounds that uh, were really quite unthinkable, tearing young men apart, uh, disease and infection, and, and all of this the doctors and nurses confronted from 1914 to 1918. I found it so interesting that there was a pivotal moment for Canadian soldiers and Canadian military medicine when the first soldiers arrived at Salisbury in England, and they were in a huge open area, living in tents, and then something happened. They got sick. How did that turn out to be a blessing? Yeah, that was a story I had um, read about in the past and, and even written about, Lawrence. As you said, this is my 13th book, but I kept uncovering all kinds of new things with this book. I think partially because it was written during COVID. And so I was thinking about disease and illness and pandemics with a, a, a different set of eyes, I suppose. Um, but what happened, as you allude to, when the Canadians arrived in uh, Salisbury Plain uh, to train in mid-October of 1914, they were confronted with the wettest and coldest season in English history in decades, and disease and illness began to ravage our, our new army of some 31,000 Canadians who had gone overseas, and a men meningitis uh, uh, outbreak occurred. And this was very dangerous and, and claimed lives. And the Canadian doctors reacted very quickly. And they, uh, they did what we would do today. They isolated the victims. There wasn't much they could do to treat them. And yet their quick action and, and the action throughout those three and a half months in, in uh, helping soldiers who were suffering from all manner of ailments uh, clearly saved lives. And, and about 30 to 50 soldiers died from that disease, and yet the, the high command uh, took note of how the medical doctors had um, reacted so um, successfully to this and uh, how they had kept casualties low. And I think, as the doctors themselves said, it was a blessing in disguise because now um, the high command, the military officers who were preparing to go to the Western Front to fight, um, they understood the importance of the doctors in what we would call today force protection. So ensuring that this army did not dissolve into a, a diseased mob unable to fight the enemy. Something I didn't realize is that 
traditionally in warfare, uh, men dying from disease is at least as much of a killer as men dying from wounds, uh, from battle. It is, and the disease has always been the reaper of armies, especially in long wars. Um, you know, think of Napoleon's army marching into Russia being decimated by disease, largely typhus. Um, the American Civil War, with its uh, massive evolution in weaponry, over 2,000 land battles, more soldiers died from disease than from um, shell or bullet. And the same with the last major war the Canadians and British fought in South Africa. And in that war, disease again, enteric fever largely uh, claimed lives. So disease has always been a great killer. And the doctors were warning in this war, especially as they began to see the war that it would be, this war of trenches, of mud and dirt, of unburied corpses, of rats feasting on the flesh of dead soldiers and spreading disease, of lice crawling over soldiers and later um, transmitting various types of disease and illnesses, that um, they really did have an important role in, uh, as I said before, ensuring that this army did not dissolve into a diseased um, uh, mob. One thing I, I noted as, as you were writing about this, uh, this time, that there are so many parallels to modern day. For example, mass vaccination of a population, in this case, the soldiers, many of whom were reluctant, had never been vaccinated before. And suddenly, they now had to line up and, and expose their shoulder to a, a jab. Uh, there was also a resulting anti-vax movement, people claiming that the government was trying to poison our children through the vaccine. And then the pandemic that hit in 1918, 1919, and the desperate fight to limit the spread of that virus. So these parallels are fascinating, but we seem to have learned so little from what happened to society 100 years ago. Yeah, Lawrence, um, all, all books have their own history or their internal logic, and I think they're all shaped by the times in which, in this case, a historian, in my case, um, write. And of course, I began writing this in April of 2020. Of course, that was deep in the pandemic. We were locked down. We were all afraid. And the first place I began to think about was the pandemic of 1918-1919, which killed 50 million worldwide and some 55,000 Canadians, just an absolute catastrophe. And I wondered um, back in April of 2020, why, as you say, why we hadn't, why we weren't making parallels to that uh, pandemic a virus, very similar to the one that we were passing through, one that mutated. We know so much more about viruses now, don't we? Um, and yet, um, you know, it took a lot of time for us to think about what happened in the war. And so that was that was my starting point uh, for the book. But there was also the medical mystery, which uh, you talked about, about the body snatching, which was driving me forward. And yet I think, um, uh, in this idea of uh, history being shaped by the contemporary, or at least I think uh, historians looking with new eyes to the past, the vaccination story was one that really jumped out at me because I had known about this before, Lawrence, but I had never really thought about it in much detail. And when you began to look for it, I began to see it everywhere, including when our vast um, first contingent of 30,000 soldiers was being raised when the doctor said 
there must be vaccination. Vaccination will save lives. You can't bring this many soldiers together in a camp where the sanitation is very spotty. Uh, think of all of the human um, uh, feces and animal feces produced just in a single day. Things like latrines and where they should be built and how to uh, burn refuse. Those two were roles for the doctors, not glamorous, the doctors often didn't want to be engaged in that, but that's part of saving lives, as was vaccination. And there was a mandatory vaccination, of which some soldiers were very uncomfortable. They had never received a needle before. And to be fair to them, uh, the photographs from that time period, and, and my book has about 150 photographs, and I, I really love photographs. I'm a public historian. I work at the Canadian War Museum. I see visually. These photographs are incredible, and there's one of a soldier looking very nervous as a doctor is about to jab him with an enormous needle and we know that uh, the needles were often uh, used and reused and reused over and over again becoming duller and duller and yet those vaccinations saved lives and continued throughout the war with soldiers uh, returning from frontline trenches muddy uh, red-eyed from fatigue, um, sorrowful, sorrowful over their comrades who were killed, and often receiving a vaccination because it would save their lives. Yeah, and as you point out, uh, that that 20th soldier waiting in line for a vaccine would be getting the same needle as the first soldier got, so that would be one heck of a sore arm the next few days. But it, it worked. It worked. And again, just another one of those parallels that, um, you know, my book is firmly about the Great War and the legacies, which you mentioned, incredible legacies that these doctors brought back. One of the key ones being in public health and that doctors said, we saved soldiers lives overseas. Now we need to save Canadians who many of whom were living in inner city slums, just astonishing, shockingly bad sanitation in our cities, where at the turn of the century, about one in four babies in Montreal, to pick one example, died before the age of one. And, and this is shocking. Um, and Canadian doctors returned, and I talk about this in the book, where they say, um, we need to do a better job. We need to do a better job in helping Canadians fight off disease and malnutrition. And they often used war analogies that 66,000 Canadians died in this awful war. And, and so we need to replace them with these young soldiers, referring to babies. Maternal care really developed after the war because of the disease prevention on the Western Front. Didn't the, the myth of the hardy Canadian northern woodsman, wasn't that exploded when these soldiers showed up to enlist and they were really quite bad health? They were, they were not hardy. They were, they were quite weak and, and sunken chests and, and didn't look at all healthy. And, and that was the, the, the scourge of, of not proper health as they were growing up. It was Lawrence, and it was one of the shocking controversies during the war, because we have to think back to those war years where Canadians were being galvanized in this crusade to fight the Hun, to liberate Western Europe, and um, and tens of thousands and then hundreds of thousands of Canadians enlisted, and you and listeners will remember by late 1917, we had the conscription crisis, forcing young men to fight against their will. And yet there were about 100,000 Canadians who could not serve. These were young men, malnourished, um, who simply 
just couldn't physically do it. And this became a major controversy because, um, you know, it just revealed the fact that we were not caring for Canadians. It also, as, as you nicely um, reminded me there, Lawrence, that Canadians had a myth of being the super soldiers, the hard warriors from the Arctic. We were raised with polar bears and a rifle in our hand. Um, and this is how the British often saw the Canadians. Um, there's entirely myth-making here. Um, uh, we were all voyageurs, was supposedly. But this is a this is a powerful way that Canadians saw themselves in the South African War, in the First World War, and to maybe a lesser extent in the Second World War. And yet, this shaking of uh, faith um, through these malnourished uh, Canadians who could not serve uh, did lead and contributed to a greater public health movement after the war. Let's get back to the war. And one of the most horrendous features, that is the use of poison gas. And as I didn't realize, it was I thought it was Germans only using the poison gas. The Allies did as well. You quoted a Canadian private who was talking about the fighting in Amiens, where poison gas was used. And he wrote, the whole thing gave one the impression that a chunk of hell had broken loose. How did Canadian doctors and nurses and medical staff in general learn to treat these men with their terrible wounds to the lungs, the eyes and the skin? Yeah, indeed, this is the war where chemical agents were unleashed and the Germans started um, against the Canadians and the French soldiers, primarily at the Second Battle of Ypres in April 1915, where the Canadians fought their trial by fire engagement. And over about four days, 6,000 Canadians were killed or wounded or taken prisoner or missing in action. That's the battle where John McCrae, the famous physician and poet, wrote his uh, wrote in Flanders Fields, which continues to resonate to this day. It's inter interesting um, John McRae, just as an aside, Lawrence, I think is often reduced to that poem. And, and of course, he was a doctor. He was a very famous doctor, uh, born in Guelph and then um, uh, practiced in Montreal, went overseas and saved countless lives. And um, uh, his greatest legacy, as he saw it, um, if he had survived the war, which he didn't, he died in, in January of 1918, his greatest legacy, he thought, was to come back and to push for greater vaccinations and inoculations for Canadians. And isn't that interesting, how different than the poem that we think about. But to come back to your question, John McRae was there at Second Eve when the Germans unleashed chlorine gas, which burned and scalded the Canadian soldiers' lungs. They had no gas masks at the time, and the Canadian doctors were forced to confront this horror. And it was seen as a horror, a chemical pestilence. And throughout the war, uh, more and more gases were used, more lethal gases, phosgene, eight times as lethal as chlorine, almost invisible. And then from the summer of 1917, mustard gas, again introduced by the Germans, which burned the skin, created these horrible blisters that became infected, blinded soldiers. And the medical services, doctors and nurses were forced to confront this new chemical weapon and they they did find ways to treat it new solutions sometimes using oxygen to help soldiers and yet with mustard gas at least um the patients were living weapons they could infect 
the nurses and the doctors because mustard gas lived on as a potent weapon. And it was one of the things that reminded me of COVID, of course, of, of the poor patients in our hospitals who could infect doctors and other caregivers. This was confronted by the doctors and nurses on the Western Front who sometimes had to operate on soldiers because they would often have multiple wounds from shrapnel or bullets also being gassed, just a horrendous constellation of misery and suffering. Sometimes they had to operate with thick um, uh, gloves. Um, sometimes they were blinded themselves, the doctors and nurses. One nurse I recount in the book whose hair turned yellow from the poisoning. This was just one of the many uh, nightmare scenarios that the doctors and nurses faced. Doctors were dealing with a fundamental conflict throughout the war, and, and some of the soldiers refer to this as the Jekyll and Hyde. On the one hand, they were there to save lives. But on the other hand, the top brass were pressuring them, the doctors, to get these men healthy again, back to the front lines, which would then put them in constant danger once they had recovered. How did doctors square this circle, this, this never-ending conflict? It is a conflict, Lawrence, and it's, um, it's a contradiction. And war is filled with contradictions. We fight wars for national ideals. Um, and yet there are always wars of unintended consequences. So, you know, the war you expect is not the one you get. And I found that, I found that in my 25 years of, of study. Um, and, I, and I always find it interesting. Uh, and in this case, the doctors, as you've nicely uh, drawn out, were faced with a tremendous contradiction. The duty to the patient and the duty to the medical, um, to the military services. The duty to the patient is obvious, I think. They were there to care for these young men, to ensure disease did not wipe them out. If they were wounded, to um, to ease their pain and to help them, depending where the doctor was in the medical service chain, um, to, to save their lives with surgery or other things. And yet the doctors, especially those closest to the front, and there was usually a medical uh, officer, a, a doctor, in a battalion. And we had 48 fighting battalions, each of about a thousand soldiers. Um, he was uh, there um, as a friend to the soldier and yet also the gatekeeper, that contradiction of the duty of service. Um, because as we know, in the book, I, I wanted to make sure I had the soldiers' voices in it. And so the soldiers are there talking about their experiences, which I draw out from letters and diaries and memoirs. Because, of course, everyone who served in the Great War is now gone. Um, but the, the soldiers talk about the strain and of breaking down from the physical misery and the mental um, constant attrition of shell fire and poison gas and seeing their comrades killed and living in the dirt and the privation. They all began to break down. Uh, and it was the doctor who would decide who could leave the front for a rest. And yet with everyone breaking down, it became almost impossible to send anyone to the rear. Everyone was needed in the firing line. And this became part of that great contradiction, the Jekyll and Hyde, as I recount in the book. And it was a moral problem for the doctors, one of many that they faced, others including triage, when hundreds of wounded soldiers in a battle would wash over a field ambulance or a casualty clearing station. 
some who were so badly wounded could not be saved. Um, there simply wasn't enough time. And so the triage system was put in place, one that's still with us today in hospitals to decide who would who needs to be treated first and who can be waited upon. And yet in times of war, it is even more devastating. Uh, and it includes those who cannot be saved and who were left often to die. You're listening to Writers Festival Radio. As always, I want to thank you for listening and for supporting authors and booksellers through these difficult times. Our official bookseller is Perfect Books on Elgin Street, and wherever you are right now, there's an independent bookseller nearby who would be more than happy to sell you some great books. If you enjoy the podcast or any of our virtual programming, please consider making a charitable donation. We can't do this without your support. And now, back to the conversation. Let's talk about the big reveal from your book, shall we say, and that is the collection of body parts for a military medicine museum. And this discovery of yours was actually years in the making. You first heard about it, as you recount, long before you actually wrote about that. Tell us how that evolved. Yeah, Lawrence, and I've been doing this for 25 years, and and I love researching at the National Archives. You and I have talked about this before, the the incredible experience of of being there and looking through these old historical records, some of which haven't been open for 100 plus years. I love that experience. I love reading the letters and the diaries of soldiers and nurses and doctors. But this is a story that years and years ago I encountered um, the idea of autopsies behind the lines. And that surprised me that doctors in hospitals were engaging in autopsies and they were doing so to learn from the dead. And of course, this is how doctors learned at the turn of the 20th century. Um, slain um, bodies, um, those who had passed, were opened up to be studied. And in there were the secrets to life. And yet, I also um, began to realize that these doctors seemed to be harvesting soldiers' body parts. And I spent years looking for those files at the National Archives to the point, Lawrence, where I thought they didn't exist. Eventually, I found them, and they did reveal that there was an official program, a British official program, um, of harvesting soldiers' body parts. These were slain soldiers. And do you think that, sorry, do you think the files were deliberately misfiled, mislaid, so that people like you wouldn't eventually discover them 100 years later? Yeah, no, no. And I thought that at first, when I was despairing a little bit and couldn't find them, I, I, my mind did sort of jump to conspiracy or that they had been destroyed. But no, they were misfiled, as, as is often the case in archives. They were labeled very strangely. Um, now making more sense to me, um, occasionally they'd say uh, pathological samples or something like that. And there are, you know, I should, for people who haven't done archives, there are millions and millions of files just related to the First World War. It takes time to go through the material. Um, but when I did and found them, it did reveal this program. And I recounted in the book, first time it's ever been told, was quite surprising to me, even though as a historian, I try to situate these stories in the context of the time. This is how doctors learned. And there was a learning process that went on through the war, and we've talked about that briefly. The surgical advances are astonishing. If you had a brain or a gut wound, even a broken femur, 
1914 or 15, it was almost a death sentence. By studying and learning and applying new surgical uh, techniques, um, uh, soldiers were routinely saved by 1917 and 1918. Uh, just one example, the introduction of blood transfusions, the use of x-rays, these all saved lives and they were advances. Um, so there was this learning process and that's where these body parts fit in. And yet, Lawrence, these were Canadian soldiers. These were fathers and brothers and uncles who enlisted to serve king and country, who never thought that their bodies, if they were killed, would be opened up. And I talk in the book about the importance of funerals and burials behind the lines, and that soldiers often risked their lives to pull in a comrade who may have been killed so that he could have a burial, so they could write home to his mother or father or wife or children to say, your son or father died, but he's buried here. Um, nobody knew that he may have been buried there, but someone had extracted his brain with a bullet hole through it or his lungs that had been burned out by mustard gas or bone fragments that doctors found interesting. And that is the contradiction to come back to our idea of uh, Jekyll and Hyde of uh, that I grappled with as a historian in trying to make sense of this. I don't think anyone could argue with the fact that if doctors were removing body parts to train other doctors, to train future students, it's dicey, but I think people could say, well, for the good of advancing medicine, that's a reasonable kind of issue that we can live with. How did it get past that point where they wanted to build a, a museum of military medicine in Ottawa with those specimens on display. That's where I can't figure it out. And, and that's, that's where it turns, I think, Lawrence, and you've nicely articulated, I think I understand as well, the autopsying of soldiers and the use of these body parts to learn. And that was clearly what was happening. There were lectures behind the lines, as strange as it sound, with doctors holding up a brain with a bullet hole furrowing through it and and trying to talk about how treatment might have saved that life probably not with a, a, a bullet through the brain but you know that's how they were used but it extended to this idea of building a museum in ottawa and it's part of the lessons learned and we talked about before the half of canadian doctors coming back bringing lessons to enrich and save the lives of canadian citizens and yet um this museum, which was never built, was to have 799 body parts that I have determined. And in fact, in the book, I name some of the soldiers who were killed and the body parts that were extracted from them. And the body parts were sent back to Canada in 1918 and 1919. They were put on display. I was shocked to find in Hamilton, Ontario, where Canadians lined up to see these body parts reported on in newspapers. As you mentioned in your introduction, um, the Prime Minister of the day, Sir Robert Borden, saw these body parts. His cabinet, once he had left office, um, um, devoted $10,000 to cataloging them. Today's equivalent would be about $150,000. So there, this wasn't a secret. It wasn't a conspiracy of silence, of mad Frankenstein-like doctors uh, running around with body parts. And yet, and this is, I think, where 
my previous books have helped me my book on Vimy, for instance, and the need for Canadians to make sense of the war and to memorialize the fallen and to sanctify the fallen. In the 1920s, there was a great movement to um, uh, to ennoble those who died in this war. We built thousands of memorials across this country. Lawrence, you and I have talked about this. There's, there's memorials in every country, every city, every town, every village. They're from the Great War. Stained glass windows in churches, war trophies brought back, commemorative histories, um, you know, the War Museum, which emerges in 1942. All of this was to ensure that we didn't forget about the war and that there was a very strong desire to say that those soldiers who died did not die in vain, that they had fought in a just war, as was seen at the time. And yet, how do you square that with the body parts? Right. How did we get to that point? And starting with 1918, the Canadian Medical Association meeting where people lined up to view these specimens to the point in the 1920s and beyond, right to this present day, when we revere the memory of soldiers who had fought and died for this country. What caused that transition, do you think? Well, I was able to find evidence in the National Archives, which I think is, is pretty clear to me. And you're exactly right. These body parts are being displayed in public. They're being written about in the medical journals. Uh, they're at McGill University. They're held at McGill. Um, and, and they're going to be cataloged. And there was a process of cataloging them and making sense of them and then stabilizing them and putting them on display. And then in 1922, it's very clear from the archival evidence that the senior medical officers at DND or what would become DND, they realize that they shouldn't have these body parts. It's very clear. And they are saying, what is this program? How can there be almost 800 body parts from soldiers? And they uh, step back and say to McGill, we would like you to hold on to these permanently. We're not going to build this museum. You hold on to these. They continued to send money to McGill, which was really interesting, but they blocked the publication of a catalog. It would be about an 800 page catalog. They, uh, and they clearly do not want to be associated with these body parts. And this is really interesting. And I, and I recount it in the book and I won't give it all away because listeners, there's a really good book for sale that you may want to uh, look into lifesavers and body snatchers, but good the plug. body parts <laughs> yeah, uh, remain at, um, uh, at McGill. And, and, and I'll just finish that story um, where eventually they are unceremoniously destroyed in the late 1950s. But it's really a shocking story, I think. And um, not only did Canadian soldiers' families not know about this, but I think it forces us to question how we as Canadians thought about the fallen soldiers in the 1920s and beyond, if on one hand we could be sanctifying them and building memorials to them, but on the other hand, um, be largely okay with the fact that body parts were harvested. You said at the end, I think it was the early 60s when the specimens were, were gotten rid of, that it's not really clear how, that I hope they were buried, properly, but you say they may have been thrown out in the garbage or thrown into the incinerator and burned. It, it, it would seem to be a, a, an awful end to a very unpleasant part of our history. You're right, Lawrence, and, and the records at D&D &D are, are not clear on how they were destroyed. 
there was a pathological museum um, at a base where they were on display for a while and eventually that closed down and they, they seem to have simply just scrapped them all. And I reflect on that in the in the early 1960s, uh, a new generation of Canadian Forces members who would have been involved in this destruction. Um, I think that they should have, and I don't think I'm being an activist historian here, again, trying to situate this story in the context of time, but there should have been a greater understanding and sense that um, at the very least, these body parts should have been buried somewhere. Yeah. Uh, but it's very clear there is no gravesite or anything like that, uh, that they were thrown out or incinerated. And that's a sad end to this story, a story, uh, as the title suggests, of lifesavers and body snatchers. Although perhaps to think about it in more positive terms, the idea of lifesavers continued on. That's the greater legacy these half of Canadian doctors, a third of Canadian nurses who came back to Canada, um, bearing the lessons learned in such a bloody, horrible uh, classroom, uh, such as it was on the Western Front, bringing back a blood transfusion, which saved uh, cancer victims and burn victims, bringing back the lessons of x-rays, which helped Canadians with tuberculosis, which was the great killer of Canadians in the 20s and 30s, young Canadians bringing back the lessons of facial reconstruction, of physiotherapy. Think of the, we had 172,000 Canadians who were wounded during the war, about half of them grievously. They were eased, their pain, um, their path back to some sense of normality by physiotherapy, which is a key aspect of the war. The list goes on and on. We've talked about public health measures. Uh, all of this emerges from the war. And I, more than a few doctors said, um, you know, that the medical profession was profoundly changed by the influence of the war. But one doctor in particular who struck me, who said, um, but at what a cost, but at what a cost. You think that when influenza hit in 1918, 1919, that Canada and the Canadian military was better prepared to deal with it. And it was still horrible, but might it have been even worse if Canadian doctors had not been through this hell of the four years of war up until then to put them in a better position? Yeah, I struggled with that. And the doctors themselves, um, some believe that they had contributed to saving lives, largely through isolation um, and physical distancing, I guess you might call it, and putting um, uh, those suffering from the virus in isolation wards, but there wasn't a lot that they could do. In fact, they thought it was a bacteria. They didn't realize until the early 1930s that it was a virus. So um, the, the doctors themselves, then about, I calculate in the book, about 1,500 Canadian soldiers died from the pandemic of 1918-19. As we said before, 55,000 Canadians died. And in Canada, there was a, it was a great failure. There was uh, very little masking, even though they, it was known that that would save lives. And uh, Lawrence, I've I've seen many photographs of uh, you know November eleventh, nineteen eighteen, the end of the war, armistice. And what's amazing, looking at them again, is that almost nobody's wearing a mask. These are huge crowds of people, super spreader events, as we might say. But every once in a while, you'll see someone wearing a mask, and I think isn't that interesting? That was at the height 
of the second wave of the pandemic. There were three killer waves that passed through Canada. Um, very interesting, I think. What emerged in the 20s from some doctors, again, was this idea that we need to do a better job in protecting Canadians, and it, it falls into public health. I guess the sad irony there is to come back to our earlier discussion of what was happening in 2020 and 2021 when we had to relearn those lessons all over again. You mentioned one, just one more question about the, the flu, and I, I don't want to call it the Spanish flu because that's the incorrect name for it. But you mentioned that the, the flu was able to spread because when people arrived at a port, say Montreal, say Halifax, St. John, that civilians were carefully screened, but not soldiers. Soldiers were just waved through. And if they were carrying the flu, that allowed them to spread it to their city, their loved ones. So it was it was a, a great challenge and, a, and frankly a disaster uh, because we should think of the Western Front, the fighting in the last hundred days from the eighth of eighth uh, of um, August contributed to forty five thousand Canadian casualties. So thousands of wounded soldiers are coming back to Canada, many of them infected, many of them spreading the virus through their communities as train loads um, go across the country. Um, and it was an absolute failure. And it, the challenge here was Canada's public health system of the time. It was provincial. And so every, every province was different. Public health officers were very poorly funded. There were often only one for a province. And so that too, uh, in the aftermath of this devastating virus that killed 55,000 Canadians, there are changes to public health in Canada, including the creation of the Department of Public Health in 1919. Again, a legacy of the war and a legacy of the virus. Um, and um, I think, again, while writing this book and seeing parallels to what we have passed through together, as uh, communities and as a nation, um, just the profound changes that have resulted in 2020, 2021, and 2022 and, and beyond um, in how a catastrophe uh, forces us to rethink um, some of our basic principles, in this case about public health and how we deal with uh, pandemics and diseases. Uh, and I think um, maybe, um, great catastrophes do that. The two world wars, profound legacies in shaping Canadians and our country. Um, the pandemic less so from 1918 uh, into 1919, but I suspect one need not be uh, a futurist to uh, see that this current pandemic will uh, also forever uh, change us. I just want to ask one final question. You stated the obvious benefits that arose from the war and from the influenza pandemic, uh, one being the Department of Health and probably overall better healthcare for Canadians back home. What do you think it did for Canadian military medicine as we moved into the Second World War in 1939 and Korea in 1950? Were doctors, military doctors and nurses and medical staff better equipped, better prepared for what was to come, having had that experience and the books if they weren't actually there from the First World War and, and the, the need for proper health care? Great question, Lawrence. And, and 
we should think of those half of Canadian doctors, many of them young doctors who had served in the Great War, they influence medicine in Canada for the next 30 and 40 years. And you can see it in their professional journals where they're writing about all aspects of um, surgical care or preventative treatment or public health, not always directly referencing the war, but sometimes. Um, and, and some of them will serve in the Second World War as senior medical officers setting policy. And we know in the Second World War that there was a better understanding of, for instance, uh, shell shock, of which I recount in the book, uh, which is known as battle stress during the Second World War, which, which continues to be a major problem in uh, wearing down uh, the fighting efficiency of Canadian soldiers. Public health is treated in the Second World War differently and more effectively. Um, but often lessons have to be relearned, and we know that it isn't quite as simple as saying those who don't uh, read their history will uh, likely repeat it in some uh, awful manner. Uh, often we do know the lessons of the past, and yet uh, circumstances change in the present uh, and require uh, constant learning. Um, the Second World War history of the medical services has not been written. And uh, maybe someone listening to this may decide that that's something that interests them. I've certainly in my time of interviewing veterans um, have talked to uh, medical doctors uh, from the Second World War. Uh, and they, um, they offer great insight into what they were doing as well. And I've always cherished those discussions. Um, but certainly there is a legacy. And maybe as a final thought, I would suggest that in the two world wars, there were profound medical legacies that emerged from the awful trauma of those two conflicts. And, and never was there a time in, in our human history, I would argue, where, uh, or certainly the 20th century, where um, military me medicine fed into civilian medicine in such a profound way uh, as with the two world wars. That's a great point to end. Thank you, Tim. Tim Cook is a best-selling author and historian. His latest book, Lifesavers and Body Snatchers, is published by Alan Lane, part of Penguin Random House. It's available online and at fine bookstores everywhere. Thank you. Thank you. That was CBC Radio's Lawrence Wall in conversation with Tim Cook, the award-winning author of Lifesavers and Body Snatchers, Medical Care and the Struggle for Survival in the Great War. It's available now from Perfect Books on Elgin and from fine booksellers across the country. Thanks to all our patrons, volunteers, and donors. And thanks to the Government of Canada, the Government of Ontario, the City of Ottawa, the Ontario Arts Council, the Canada Council for the Arts, Ottawa Public Library, Carleton University, and CBC for their ongoing support. This podcast is produced by Aaron Flynn, original music and sound engineering by Mike Dubay, Kira Harris is our program director, and I'm Sean Wilson. Thank you for listening. Music